Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian podcast. So great to be with you. I am Dr. Fujian Zain, a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the awareness integration theory. Our conversation is about what matters most in our lives, our minds, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. For all of your beautiful souls, great people who will keep asking me about our latest book, I just want to share with you what they are. Um, a couple of good news. One is the Intentional Parenting uh, book that uh, is a practical guide to awareness integration theory. Uh, I wrote this with two of my amazing colleagues, Dr. Nicole Jafari and Dr. Eileen Manukian, who are both experts in, um, they're both experts in human dynamic and uh, human um, early development child of, of childhood. And um, we went through this book for you and put it in chapters, for example, uh, infancy and then toddler and preschool and school age and preteen and teen and you know late teen and uh, we brought the all the aspects of developmental um, aspects of what's normal what might be some of the issues that parents go through and looking at it from the awareness integration theory and give you some tools in order how to be with your children this book is great for teachers who are working with children for parents um, grandparents and um, all of that for all of you wonderful coaches and therapists who want to become certified in the awareness integration therapy um, this is the book for you clear the past create a new future and live a fulfilled life and this book goes through uh, all of the phases the theoretical background and interventions of, of this methodology, which is being used as a psychotherapy model and also an educational model. Um, we are going to have our my app, Fujian app, will be out with the awareness integration theory. And uh, we're going to need a lot of therapists and coaches across the world um, to be able to support people who are going to uh, have the app. And the app is going to go through looking at uh, different aspects of your life and taking you through the whole process. It is set up for you to have um, the, uh, it is set up for you to have uh, experience of a self-help with it. However, um, there are times where whether somebody is going through a trauma or um, they need a voice, they need a face, they need someone to work with. And I think that's the beauty of also having the ability to work with someone who knows this uh, methodology and the theory. So if you are interested, just contact me, fujanzain.com um, or awarenessintegration.com, and I will definitely get you to some of the courses. In this episode, I am excited to chat with Kimberly Brown. She is a popular meditation teacher and author. She leads classes and workshops that emphasize the power of compassion and kindness to reconnect us to ourselves and others. Her teachings provide an approachable pathway to personal and collective well-being through effective and modern techniques based on traditional practices. Kimberly studied in both the Tibetan and Insight School of Buddhism and is a certified mindfulness instructor. 
an updated and revised edition of her book, Steady, Calm, and Brave, um, the 25 Buddhist Practices of Resilience and Wisdom in Crisis, will be released in January 2023. But today, we're going to be actually talking about her latest book, um, which is called Navigating Grief and Loss, 25 Buddhist Practices to Keep Your Heart Open to Yourself and Others. We had an amazing conversation and I truly enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did and learn from it. And we do have the practice at the end. So you got to listen all the way to the end. Subscribe to this podcast or my YouTube channel and connect with me through my website, foodronsane.com or any of my social media. If you're wanting to do um, your own work, your self-help book, and uh, you want to share it with people, especially since Christmas is coming, um, this is the book, Life Reset, uh, the awareness integration path to, um, to create the life you want. And you can find all of these books in Amazon and um, or my website. And uh, this one is for you just to sit down, journal with it and go through your beautiful process. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear about it. So uh, go through the process, call me or or text me or email me because I love to hear from you. So without further ado, here we are uh, with Kimberly. Well, here we are with Kimberly Brown. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Fujian. It's really, really nice to be here. Well, we're going to be talking about your book, Navigating Grief and Loss. Um, first of all, I'm really, really glad that I saw your book because as I was going through it, um, I was looking at every aspect of grief. Like I kept going from one topic to another and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I've probably experienced most of the chapters that you have talked about. And uh, what I love about the book is not only that you talk about the subject, but you bring a meditation and a, um, a way of looking at it and a way of experiencing it, which really does honor um, your grief, your honor, the emotion that is coming up for us in such a natural way. And I think that most of us have been trained to push it aside, avoid it, run through it really quick. And for some reason, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a therapist. So um, for some reason, it has become as if mental health looks like you run through grief and you're happy and dandy right after it, um, which is not accurate. And I love it that in your book, you go, again, the word just respect and honoring those parts of us that needs to just be there and, and heal itself. So um, it's, it's a beautiful book, everyone. I really suggest for all of you to get the book, Navigating Grief and Loss, 25 Buddhist Practices to Keep Your Heart Open to Yourself and Others. So um, tell us 
what was it about grief that got you to want to write about it? Right. <clears throat> well, you know what you were just saying that um, when you were reading the book, you thought, oh, I, I can see myself there and there and in that experience. And that was one of the reasons that I wrote the book, because we are all going to experience grief. We're all, life is filled with change and loss, and there's not much we can do. We cannot control all of that. And so the main reason that I wrote the book is to um, allow us all to acknowledge that. And as you just said, as a therapist, you know, you've noticed, well, the way people deal with grief, well, we could, maybe we want to put it over here and leave it alone, or we're going to kind of tie it up in a box in two weeks and it's done and it's on the shelf. You know, um, but that is not how the grieving process works. It may be very surprising to you. It may go on much longer than you would like. It may sometimes look like anger and frustration. It may sometimes look like deep, deep sadness, you know. And so the reason I wrote this book is because, of course, I have experienced grief and loss. Uh, both of my parents have died. And those were difficult. My dad, though, was 90 years old. So it was very hard. And there were, you know, a lot of sadness, and I miss him. And yet it seemed natural, you know, he'd lived a very nice life. And then someone very close to me, a very old friend, her name is Denise, or was Denise, died. And that just knocked me over. I mean, literally knocked me down. That was maybe four years ago. And I benefited so much from the tools that I'd learned as from being a Buddhist student and a meditation teacher. And you don't have to be a Buddhist to use your mind to cultivate mindfulness, to be able to sit with difficult feelings, and to be able to offer yourself, you know, kindness and compassion. So that was really the impetus for the book. And I hope whoever reads it will uh, not just read it, but also do the practices. Yes. One of the um, nicest thing that I saw in this book is like, not only you talk about, you know, death, we're losing um, someone to death, but also losing different, you know, from one phase of life to another, losing a job, um, losing uh, a part of our body or youth. Um, there's so many different losses, divorce, um, which I deal with in you know in my practice almost every day and people go through all of these losses in a different way and one of the ways that i've seen it uh, keep holding on to and which makes it kind of like a complicated grief is that um there's all these meanings that we give in in the about the loss and um it is so hard for us to let go um, especially if something was pleasant to us. And sometimes I've noticed not only that we're letting go of something that is passing by, but with it, we're also letting go and grieving for the idea of what you know we should have had. So it all becomes very convoluted. What are your ideas about this type of meanings that we give to, um, to grief and loss? That's fascinating, Pujan, because in the Buddhist tradition, you know, we're encouraged and the practices encourage us to take a look beyond the stories, 
You know, most of us that we have stories every minute and judgments, and then we get caught up in them. And it really takes us away from our direct experience, you know, not only of our senses, but of our feelings, you know. And so part of the book and the practices in it is to allow people to develop tools to see their stories. They don't have to make them disappear. It's not easy to do that, but to see them for what they are. This is a story, so, and it, it's around a loss that I had. It's a feeling about what happened at work before I was fired. And often in my experience, people are holding on to that, what happened at work before I was fired, instead of feeling, wow, it is so painful. And I'm so scared to lose my job and have this experience, you know. Um, so that that is the way kind of to work with it. And also something that you pointed out, and it's in the book too, Fujian, is sometimes with a loss, we have to honor that we had hopes or, you know, um, plans that were predicated on something that now no longer exists and to be able to open up to that and say yeah you know i i had hoped for example my mom and i my mom was an alcoholic and our relationship was very troubled and after she died i kind of thought i wouldn't have a lot of grief because our relationship was so hard but i had even more grief and it was very complicated because i felt a lot of anger and also a lot of guilt. And I realized, well, any hope for a better relationship with her is now gone. And I really had to mourn that story and say, oh yeah, that is sad. It's sad that that isn't going to happen. And in, or and in doing so, it felt I didn't have to hold on to it so tightly. Mm -hmm. One of the areas that was interesting um, as I read it was, um, the grief we have for strangers. And it is, it really hit a home for me, Kimberly, because um, I don't know if you know or not, recently there's an uprising of, of the women in Iran and many of the young women are being killed. And a lot of just young people are being killed. And you see like um, um, high school students or um, you know, um, elementary students are getting up, they're taking a stand for themselves, and they're be being brutally killed. And I just can't handle this concept. I'm like, I go into my grief. And it's funny, because I'm not going into my rage, but I go into such a sadness. And I saw that part of the book that you were talking about the grief we have for strangers. These are strangers. They're not part of my family. They're not in my life. But, you know, sometimes you look at like the war in Ukraine or you, you look at something outside of you, which brings so much sadness. And it's almost like you're feeling their grief or you're feeling um, the loss of their hope. And with them, it's the loss of not only their hope, but a hope for like kind of like humanity and and the graciousness. And I know that, you know, um, learning about the Buddhist concept, this concept of compassion really, really helps, but then it has a, like a double-edged sword, which is funny because in one essence, the compassion, it becomes so much that you're almost like feeling their feeling. The other side of it is that when, when I find myself not having compassion for the brutality or the people who are 
being brutal, you know, or the perpetrators or the villains or the dictators or people killers or whatever. I find myself not being compassionate about them. And then I get this like fear, like, oh, you know, how can I be also very cruel or is it just my anger? And it's like this, you know, kind of like confusion that shows up as um, because, you know, the, the meditation and the Buddhist concept is like love and compassion. And sometimes, you know, I hear, um, I listen to Ram Dass and it was like, you know, even if somebody I don't like, I put them in there and I keep, I keep bringing them love until I can even find them, although I don't like what they're doing. And it's a, it's a, a struggle, Kimberly. Yes, yes, it is, Fujian. And thank you so much for your practice and even attempting to offer your compassion and love to strangers and to, to people that are difficult because it's very hard to do. Um, part of, you know, part of recognizing and feeling heartbreak for these people that you're talking about the women in Iran, and then of course there's war in Ukraine, and there's always difficulties and disasters and deaths, and we read about them and hear about them more and more. And when we allow ourselves to feel that sadness, feel that grief, feel maybe, um, anger on their behalf, the unfairness. First of all, it's an expression of our humanity. You know, it's very beautiful to allow ourselves to do that and to recognize, okay, we'll never meet them. And they're human, just like us. They have the same sorrows and the same struggles and the same joys, you know? So it's very beautiful, I think, to, you know, reconnect in that way. And from a Buddhist view, and I think just from a wisdom view, Fujian, that when we don't look away, which is the other way I think we're, we're trained, right? And it makes sense. We're inundated by difficulty. What do we do? Okay, well, we just turn the page or we go do something else or we keep scrolling, right? But looking away like that, then you lose the connection with these people. And there may be ways, if you can keep a connection with them, to help them in the future. I mean, it's true. I can't, you know, quote unquote, do something for the women of Iran right now. But you know what? The U.S. has different policies. I can keep them in my heart and my mind the next time I vote. I can keep them in my heart and my mind the next time, you know, I travel. Whatever it is to not look away, that's what allows us then to have this compassion. And... We can have the compassion, and compassion here is defined as empathy, you know, feeling their struggle, with a sense also of how could I help? Is there a way I could help? And maybe the only way I can help right now is to keep them in my heart and send them, you know, good wishes, you know. But I can have this sense of, of helping and supporting in some way. And all of us have this ability, but it's just sometimes feels very overwhelming. So a big part of compassion training in the tradition is also wisdom training, which is, A, the world is not up to me. You know, Fujian, I wish it was up to you or me. I bet we'd have a really, you know, much more balanced and equitable place. But it's not up to me. It's all out of my control, you know. And B, everything changes. You know, we can use our words and our actions to help bring about change that may take time, 
that can support, you know, these people that are grieving. But I think we're, our culture, you know, we're doing ourselves a disservice when we look away because it's the same as what you started with. You know, people think we're going to just take this grief and put it in a box, our personal grief and our grief for the world. But instead we're saying, no, 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 no. We can have it. We can feel it. We can learn from it. And we can recognize all of the ways in which we can bring kindness to ourselves and others in that. Yes. I want everybody to see your book, Navigating Grief and Loss, the 25 Buddhist Practices to Keep Your Heart Open to Yourself and Others by Kimberly Brown. Kimberly, um, you put in, in every chapter, you put in a meditation uh, that is directed to the point of uh, the content or the topic of the grief that you're talking about. What is it that you want to share with our audience about the meditative practices? I know you've been a meditation teacher and a follower for a long time. If you could talk to us also from a perspective of people who might have um, a little bit of a struggle with meditation, right? So for example, when I look at, I want to do something in a routine and I do everything on a routine basis, but when it comes to meditation, it's interesting because I can be in a meditative state really quickly, but I don't do the routine. It's as if like I sit and it's like, nah, it's not it. And then I kind of like go away. And then sometimes it's like, oh, it's time. It's almost like for me, it calls me versus me calling it. Um, it's, it's like, okay, come back and now you need to go in and then I'll create the space to go in. But if I'm doing this every morning, for example, at 7am, it doesn't work out. And I know that working with people in my office, you know, even attempting to create meditation for them or, or giving them sometimes the homework to do, you hear all these different types of <laughs> struggles that people have or resistances or just style, let's say, that they have. What are your suggestions for people where uh, just regular meditation advices that people give just not when it work? Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, it, first of all, it's hard for everyone, especially when you begin, you know, hard being well, we're not accustomed to being still for so long, you know, um, we're not accustomed to really, you know, what does it mean to look at your mind? What does it mean to pay attention? I have a friend who teaches mindfulness in schools with kids. And she was saying that a lot of teachers and even parents will say to kids, pay attention. And they don't really know what it means. So they just kind of sit up straight with their eyes wide open right? So we're learning these skills that maybe we hadn't learned, you know, to begin with. And uh, from my tradition, the, the practices are, um, they're designed not to push anything away, and not to make anything happen, you know, so it's not like, in this tradition that you would look for a blissed out state, or you'd feel happy necessarily, or you'd feel sad, the orientation is to be able to have um, kindness and openness to whatever is arising so that we can have balance whatever the circumstances are, including grief. Now, learning that, the first step for most of us is to practice a form of mindfulness of coming back, concentration. So many people will learn to put their uh, attention on their breath 
maybe on their nose or their chest and just keep coming back and they'll notice, you know, oh my gosh, now I'm thinking about dinner. Okay, I'm going to come back to my breath. Oh, I'm, you know, now I'm remembering that movie I saw. Okay, I'm going to come back to my breath. And that develops, you know, this muscle, this focus muscle. So that's one that is kind of get the focus and the steadiness. And then another um, quality of meditation is the, the quality of insight to start to notice, oh, everything's changing all the time. I'm going to, you know, I go on meditation retreats and sometimes, you know, I'm there for a week or two, there's silent and you practice and practice. And some days, you know, I sit and my mind gets so still and Fujian, I think, oh my God, this is it. I am totally blissed out. This is so great. And the next day I sit and my mind is wild, right? And what's that teaching me? It's teaching me that everything is changing all the time, including my mind and the the what meditation does is allow me to relate to it differently. It doesn't suddenly give me a blissed out mind. It means, oh, I'm kind and I'm clear with this scattered mind and I'm kind and I'm clear with this peaceful mind. I have the wisdom that it's all going to change. Not, everything's not entirely up to me, the circumstances, and I can live in a, a sense of equanimity you know, with it all. So that's the insight piece that comes up. And finally, one of the practices that's been the most helpful to me, and it's throughout my book, is a practice called metta, M-E-T-T-A. It's a, a Pali word from the early Buddhist tradition. It's translated as loving kindness. And this practice is offering ourselves, offering each other, offering strangers, phrases of kindness, phrases of wisdom. May I be safe. May you be happy. May we be peaceful and at ease with each other, okay? And this sort of practice, uh, the brain scientists love this one because they see in about 12 weeks of regular practice, um, less self-criticism and more pro-social behavior. It's, I think we live, Fujian, you're a therapist, so you can speak to this too, but we live in a time of deep self-criticism, self-loathing. There's a lot of cruelty that we're expressing to ourselves. And my experience with this practice, both, pers both personally and with my students, is that it, it allows, a, it gives permission to, you know, bring kindness, bring peace, bring gentleness instead of oh, that was so stupid. I'm so dumb. Why am I doing it that way? I always think this way. When is that going to, you know, many of my students come to me, they want to be better people. And from the Buddhist view, they don't need to be better people. They need, and we all need to simply recognize all of the love and kindness and compassion and wisdom that we have and start to develop it for ourselves. Very much. As you were talking, I realized it was funny because when, um, when I'm my my mind is really busy and I'm trying to meditate, it almost it's like no 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 it's going to be boring there no no I got a lot of stuff to do what do you need just quiet down no 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 so it's resisting it that way, and then finally when the transition is done and I'm in this like blissful state. And then it's like, all right, like, you know, you're done. You need to, no, 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 this is fine. I just want to stay here. It's too busy over there. I don't want to do anything. I just want to be. And it's it's interesting that each state 
I'm enjoying it for itself and it's resisting to go to the next state, which is the other one. That's beautiful. And that is a profound insight. It's the insight of our resistance to change. All of us, you know, it's a moment to moment. No, I want things just to be the way they are right now. Can't happen. But we're constantly in small ways and big trying to fix it. And in grief, I mean, that's the biggest one. We can't control loss. We can't control all of these changes. And it becomes almost dangerous, like trying to not allow that change to happen. Yes. And I think in grief, one of the most important factors are the concept of each one of us grieving in a particular way, which is just who we are. And I know that you know, there's systems such as Kubler-Ross and other systems that, you know, stage it and create, okay, this going to, grief is going to go through these phases. And uh, sometimes when we categorize things, it's helpful because we're, we're looking at, okay, I'm part of the category, so I'm normal. The other side of it is that categories don't fit us all with all of our capacity. So it kind of also limits us. Or it feels like, okay, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe the way that I'm doing that is it's it's abnormal and it shouldn't be. Or other people tell me that, you know, my way is weird and it should be their way. And I think this concept of knowing and acknowledging that we all grieve in a different way and it's okay to grieve in a different way. And I think that each person, when they get to know that, that's what they're doing. And I saw it even in your book, which is that the person doesn't name it. They'll, they'll be depressed. They'll be sad. They'll be vulnerable. They'll be angry. And they'll have all of these different types of emotions, the fear, the anxiety about the future. But they just don't call it grief. They feel is as if like, okay, um, the, the notion we talked about as if like grief should have been the first three days or a week. And then, so whatever is happening after that, it's not grief, you know, you're depressed or something wrong with you. So this naming and really getting that this is just your way of being with this. And people take different time frame for themselves. Somebody does it in three days and somebody does it in three years. And, um, and I think that it has different phases. Like it goes from very intense to, you know, to mild to sometimes intense again, because we're walking to the next level of life and it shows up again, you know? Um, and a lot of people who come to me because of the divorce proceeding, I usually say it takes about two years, even after the day that you've signed and it came to your home, because it's not like you're going to have the same intensity at the beginning, but it's just every time you're going to come to the next level of life. You know, the first time you want to date, the first time you were selling your home that you lived with the, with your spouse the same you know the first time you're going to be with your uh, with your child at a um, ceremony and then instead of you sitting with your spouse your spouse is sitting with someone else all of these different scenarios are going to bring a rush of something again which is again part of the grief that shows up and i think that when we get to see um our style and whatever is working for us and just walking tr through them. And I saw that in your book, you, you know, the meditations that have been set up for each one of these um, topics of, of grief really deals with whatever the issue is at hand on that particular one and allows you to release it. Can you share a little bit about 
how you chose those meditation skills based on the topic. Yeah. I mean, many of them, or all of them really came from my own experience using them or with students. And as you say, there's, it's unique. Each of us will grieve in a unique way. Our process will be unique. What seems to be not unique is um, this a, a sense of frustration of when it's going to end. Or I don't know if it's just very common, right? I had a dear friend, her mom had died in the summertime and around Christmas, my friend called me, she felt very kind of overwhelmed and nervous. And I said, well, no, your mom just died. And she said, oh, she died six months ago, Kim. Okay. It's like you said, she was moving to this next level. She was having a Christmas without her mom, you know? Um, and there seems to be, you know, we have this frustration with what's going on in our heart and our mind. And the practices are all designed to say, okay, no, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right to feel this way. It's normal. And as you were saying, you know, it's not this kind of straight line. You know, someone dies or I get divorced and it's, I'm just going to make this progression up. It goes like this for most of us, you know, and it might take time and it might seem like, oh, I'm great. And a few months later, I'm, you know, feeling uneasy. So the feelings that come up, they're not uniform either. It might be, you know, you might, I don't know, after my friend Denise died, I was so angry. I was shocked at how angry I was. So I have some practices in the book that will um, help someone who may be feeling anger or even rage after someone, you know, dies or in a divorce, you know, and being able to uh, work with anger and the body feelings that come up, which are really powerful. You know, um, other types of feelings that people might have. Some people's minds seem very unste unsteady, very scary. Um, and to be able to um, not only practice with that and look at that, but to do some meditations and some contemplations about receiving help. You know, some of us, it's very hard to receive help. It's really hard to ask for help and get support. But doing meditation saying, okay, you know, I'm, I am open to, you know, ask, rec recognizing I'm supported by others and I'm not alone and taking a step to call people I love, to find a therapist, to read a book, whatever, it, you know, whatever it takes. But as you say, you know, through this process, there are so many different feelings or circumstances that are going to come up that I tried to use meditations that had been helpful to me in these different circumstances and to people close to me and my students. Yes, it's beautiful to go through the meditation processes. I want everybody to see this again. If you are uh, watching the videos, navigating grief and loss, or even you're hearing us on the podcast, navigating grief and loss, 25 Buddhist practices to keep your heart open to yourself and others by Kimberly Brown. Kimberly, why Buddhist practices? Is it because of the meditation processes that you were, or was it that there's a, you know, you've gravitated to the Buddhist uh, philosophy? You know, it's a good question. And I have to say, I just have to have a disclaimer that I'm a Buddhist, but I don't, I carry it lightly. It's not a religion to me. I don't believe in, you know, a God named Buddha, but the practices as well as the teachings are very, very useful in our human life. The Buddhist teachings tell us right away, hey, everybody's going to get older. Everybody's going to get sick. 
and everybody is going to die, including you. These are, this is not good. This is not bad, but you will suffer a lot if you're trying to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And so all of these practices are designed to allow us to have compassion and kindness to ourselves and everybody else who live in this human realm. And this, this is the way life, you know, will unfold for us. Is there anything that you want to share that we haven't shared and you really want people to know? I really want everyone to know, Fujian, that you can meditate, that you can do it. It may seem um, awkward at first, and you will probably feel like, oh, I'm not doing it right. It's not working. It's working. It takes time. You know, sit every day just for 10 minutes and just for two weeks and follow your breath. You know, you, it, it will, you will see a change in your relationship to yourself. And if you can't even get there, at least take five minutes a day without your devices, you know, put your phone away, turn off the TV, turn off your computer, just sit, sit quietly in your kitchen, have a cup of tea. Oh, that's, those are ways of really, truly taking care of yourself that will benefit you. Can you give us a little bit of a meditation to complete this conversation? I would be happy to, Fujian. Would you be willing to, to practice with me? Absolutely. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So, you know, just um, go ahead and close your eyes and just start to notice your the sensations of your body, feeling your feet, your seat, your belly, relaxing your shoulder blades, relaxing the back of your head. And just noticing that you're breathing. And you can notice that by you might feel your belly moving, you might feel air coming in and out, in and out of your nose. And taking a moment to recognize someone that you've loved in life that has loved you in a very easy way. It's called a benefactor. It's usually an aunt or an uncle or a very dear friend or a pet, someone not complicated like family or spouse. And when you have an image of them, making a connection, And offering these two phrases, may you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be happy, may you be at peace. And just silently for a few seconds saying that to them. And now Fujian and anyone else listening, including yourself with this loved one, this being that has held you close in an easy way, delighted in you and you, and maybe you imagine the two of you together, or maybe you just feel the two of you. May we be happy. May we be at peace. 
May we be happy. May we be at peace. May we be happy. May we be at peace. And just for a few seconds, repeating these phrases. Offering it to everyone in the world right now. May we be happy. May we be at peace. And whenever you're ready, you can let go of that meditation. Bring your attention here. Thank you, Fujian, for practicing. And of course, anyone who's listening, you can, you know, you can use those phrases for yourself. You can include others. You can include your family. You can include people who you haven't even met. We mentioned the, the women in Iran and people in Ukraine and everyone struggling. Thank you so much. It automatically brings a beautiful smile on people's face and hearts. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. You're welcome, Fujian. It was a pleasure. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.